Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm not really interested in just being good. Like, I'm not just interested in saying the right thing and saying the thing that sounds right and saying the future is female and everything's going to be great and men suck or cancel men, right? Like, that gets all kinds of views and engagement and followers, right? To act from a place of anger, to act because a lot of people are angry, and I totally understand that. I measure activism based on impact. And that's what I'm trying to achieve with this book. I'm trying to make it more palpable to men for sure, but not because I think men can't handle it, not because I think women have to be nicer to men and not be so in their face. I'm just really interested in everyone feeling welcome in this conversation. And yeah, me writing a book that is making all kinds of great points about masculinity, but then no man ever reads and worse that only women read. And then they're trying to convince they're the ones again, doing the emotional labor of helping men through these challenges. That's not what I want. I want women to be free of that emotional labor. I want to be free of that emotional labor. I've done it. I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want my daughter, you know, if I have a daughter one day to have to do it anymore. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is a podcast that breaks down interpersonal science into practical and understandable tidbits. And as you listen, I can just imagine little light bulbs of insight appearing above your head. You're going to be surprised and touched at what you learn about yourself as you get more accurate and in-depth view of your mind and your heart and as you figure out those close to you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. You know, we really considered whether or not we should continue to produce our regular episodes at such a time of global threat and pandemic and plague. After some consideration... We snapped that what better time, actually, to be learning about promoting secure relationships in the world. You know, if you're new, that's what our jam is. What we talk about on this podcast is we bring you the science of relating, you know, everything from interpersonal neurobiology, modern attachment, trauma, anything that can help us outsmart our bodies, basically outsmart our nervous system so that we can be the you know, basically best human possible, and that we're able to promote that in other people so as best we can. So that's what we're about. And from that perspective, we're really excited to bring you this next episode with our conversation with Liz Plank. Now, Liz is a award-winning journalist. She is the executive producer of several critically acclaimed series at Vox Media. Her TED Talk, How to Be a Man, A Woman's Guide, inspired her book, for the love of men, a new vision for mindful masculinity. So what caught my eye and why I reached out to her is that I could just tell right away that she was speaking in a way that would draw people in that weren't just in the choir already. 
here at Therapist Uncensored, we definitely want to get out of echo chambers, both in our learning, but also in our distribution of this really cool material. So I was not alone in thinking that she had a way of speaking to people in a way that they could hear. And as a matter of fact, she's considered one of the most influential in news media. She was ranked one of the 50 most influential women by Marie Claire. She was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30, and she was just named one of the world's most influential people in gender and policy. Most influential people in the world. So you can imagine I was very excited when she responded and agreed to be on the show, and she was incredibly generous with us, and I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. And you can think of it, whether you're interested in gender or just leadership in general, influence, having influence, it's a wide-ranging conversation, and I think that you will love it. So without further ado. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I know. Oh, my God. I was you just... don't know. I love you gals. I listened to a couple months ago. I'd read Attached, but I hadn't, like, registered it in my life. Yeah. And a couple months ago, I was like, I think, I think I'm avoidant. Like, I always thought I was <laughs> anxious. So I started listening to you, to, to, to both of you, and I loved so many things that you've said. I've, like, repeated to other people. When I remember you guys saying a lot of people think they had to have, you know, challenging, abusive childhoods. And if, if you had good parents, that was always my thing. Like my parents were good. Right. I'm not screwed up. So I thought that was really important and I hadn't heard that anywhere. So I'm thank just, you. I'm blown away. That is so awesome. I can't believe it. Yeah. It's wonderful. Oh my well, God. No, I, you're helping so many people. Your latest episode about narcissists who I'm dealing with right now. So it was really <laughs> helpful to have that empathetic perspective on it mm -hmm. when you guys said that I was like I don't want to have empathy for him right now but it actually comes back to what I, I'm trying to do with the book which is like having empathy for people doesn't mean that you let them off the hook and actually sometimes it can mean that you have empathy for yourself and respect for yourself and you don't internalize the other person's pain and try and find a motivation that has something to do with your self-worth or your value as a human and you see it as their trauma or, or pain. So anyway. What I was super interested in is your influence. Uh, you know, I know you've been really recognized for that. One of the most, by the most influential person with gender and policy. Uh, one of the 50 most. <laughs> and having the privilege of the mic it's like, I want to learn everything I can about influence and particularly about this topic, because I'll tell you the very first thought that I had, the first thing I hear is in my mind is, you know, who are these two white women trying to talk about privileged uh -huh. women, trying to talk about masculinity. And mm -hmm. here I have a, I have a female guest. And so maybe that can be kind of where to begin. Cause I, I know that if two men were inviting a man on and <laughs> to talk about new definitions okay. of femininity, yeah. You know, it gets just so tricky. So I'm, I'm think I'm yeah. already starting in our project a little defensive of like, how do I respond to that? I get that a lot. And as a gender reporter, as a person who's been reporting and doing journalism and videos and speaking about women's issues and specifically how it applies to our political environment, a lot of people were uncomfortable with me writing my first book about men. I think a lot of people thought I would write it about women. And so what I found was <laughs> this complicated position I was in where I knew people who are anti-feminist or who aren't interested in a progressive conversation 
where we are more flexible with gender roles. I know that they don't like me and I know that they didn't want this book, but you know, the sort of like she hates men and that's why she's writing this and she's mm-hmm. anti-man and she wants to change men. But what I didn't expect is also the pushback from women of saying, why would you put more focus on men? Men already have all of you know, the mic, they're behind the camera, they're in front of the camera. Why do we need more storytelling around men? And my answer is, I mean, there's a few things there. First of all, I wrote the book that didn't exist and that I wanted desperately to exist because what I was seeing over and over again as I was researching, studying, reporting on women's issues and on the biggest problems that are facing women, so many of those problems are caused by men mm-hmm. <laughs> or have something to do with men. And, you know, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's sexual-based violence, right? This amazing conversation around the Me Too movement, this really important conversation that we're having around politics and democracy. It's really hard to not see the elephant in the room, which is the urgency of a conversation, yes, about women, but also about men. Yes, about femininity and the ideals of womanhood that we place on women, how doubly it is hard for women of color and for any marginalized you know, woman who is not yeah, white, straight, cis, yeah. non-disabled, and lives in you know, the United States as a coastal elite, all those things, right? Compound and making it really hard to be a woman nowadays, and the progress is far too slow. But I think that it's wrong to think that you know, human rights are like somehow a finite resource. That if we give human rights to to women, then that means, you know, we're taking them away from men, which is what I think a lot of conservatives, you know, not all conservatives, but I think there are bad actors out there who are exploiting that idea with especially young men online and creating really dangerous forms where, yeah, there's this idea that feminism is going to make your life harder. When what I found was that the more feminism you have in a society, the more gender equal a society is, the better it is for women, the better it also is for men. So we can delve into that in several different ways. The data really reveals that. But that's where I would start, you know, by explaining that, unfortunately, a lot of men don't talk about masculinity. A lot of men don't talk about what it means to be a man. And for almost all of the men that I spoke to for this book that I, you know, spent four years reporting and collecting data around, I was the first person to ever ask a man what's hard about being a man. Mm-hmm. So I would love men to be writing about this. I would have loved to been doing something else with my life for the last four years <laughs> than talking to men and reporting out this book and having this difficult conversation. But I think that unfortunately, a lot of men don't feel safe to have that conversation. It's not a mainstream conversation in the same way that it is for women. And so I just thought it was really important to have a conversation around masculinity that is inclusive of women, a conversation around feminism that is inclusive of all genders, Mm -hmm. and that we lead with empathy so that we are not creating the perfect slogan or the perfect reason for men to feel alienated by a movement that actually benefits them. Oh my gosh, I love what you're saying. And (laughs) leading with empathy. And one of the things I wanted to hear a little bit more too is like, what's the magic of your influence? Because when in reading the book, it's very approachable. I could see it, you know, it's so easy to get people defensive, you know, like yeah. we talk a lot about neurobiology and stuff. It's like you can hit the back of the brain and then sure. the conversation's over. over. One of the things you talked about that I really loved was the misnomer of the gender wars and how that really the war, as I understand it, is folks who are open to shedding these constraining 
labels around mm-hmm. gender and expectations, and then those who don't want to do that and want to really hold the status quo, and that that's 100%. actually the war. And in that sense, that's very inclusive and very open. Yeah, and it makes it more complicated because then some of the research I did in the book was also how when a lot of women have internalized sexism or have internalized not just you know a form of fixed gender roles for women, but also a, a set of fixed gender roles for men. And in many ways, the gender roles for men or the, I guess, the latitude is so much smaller in terms of what they can do in terms of flexibility of those gender norms. And of course, you know, the asterisk or the, sorry, we an asterisk, again, depending on what kind of woman you are, if you fit into many categories of privilege, you have even more latitude to move around and to explore and to transgress femininity norms. But I do find that for men, there's, I mean, there are just rules, right? And the thing I write about in the book is, as a reporter, when you when you want to talk to people about something, and they don't want to talk to you about it, or they look around before they speak to you, <laughs> you want to ask, you know, 100 more questions. That's, mm-hmm. that, you that's, know, you're on the right track. Really, exactly, exactly. And so, that's what I found. That's true for and therapy I, as well, by the way. <laughs> that's a good point. Oh, wow. Now I'm going to see my therapist do that. Now I'm going <laughs> to catch her. But, you know, I say in the book that masculinity is a lot like Fight Club. The first rule is that you don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the male code. The male code is so strong. And it's kind of like the Macarena. Like, no one knows when they learned, you know, these rules about masculinity and, and certain things that you can't do and can do. But they all, they all know them. And a lot of There's men follow script. them, even though they don't want to. They're scripts, exactly. They, they mm-hmm. do gender. Women do gender. And I think we've talked a lot about that, not enough. And that conversation is far from over. But I think that we've made women more aware of those scripts, of the ways that, huh, I'm not as assertive as I would want to be. I've modeled myself, you know, I grew up in the 90s in the the age of Disney princesses and really toxic representations of femininity. And I'm still doing the work of unlearning a lot of the things that I absorbed from a very young age about what it meant to be a woman and who I needed to be in the world. And men are so assumed to be the standard, like masculinity is not a gender, right? When you think of gender equality, most people think about women and not just most people, even policymakers. I talk about the lack of interest and curiosity about the development of boys in our society and how they are impacted by things like media images and by the models of masculinity that are out there, the models inside their own family, um, the models that they see in Hollywood and movies and TV and books. Those things really shape boys too and define what they think is possible for them and we know that some of the most obvious rules about masculinity right men don't wear high heels that to me you know is such a thing that you hear in our society and I think a lot of men are starting to explore with that but most men if they walked into their office job tomorrow in a pair of heels they would be looked at they would be stigmatized maybe they would even be told you know Mm -hmm. you have to change Um, they could get fired there are real consequences to that when in fact high heels were invented by men for men to get on their horses more easily, you know, like centuries ago. Makeup is a very similar thing too, right? We just decided, well, makeup is for women and makeup is not for men when, you know, that's not the way that things used to be. There are cultural differences, right? Men hold hands. If you go to Cairo, like I did, you know, 10 years ago when I, I remember being, being there and, and seeing men holding hands and I thought, you know, 
the first ones I saw were like, oh, cool, a gay couple. That's great. And like, mm-hmm. oh, that's just something that they do. And so, you know, I'm just interested in us being curious about that. And I think that a lot of men haven't necessarily been given permission or been given the tools to really explore that. That's very much kind of, you know, the takeaway and what I want to get out to the airways here is this notion of it freeing men, that it's not constrained, it's that to be able to define themselves in any way. And in that sense, that's some of what you're talking about besides, of course, suicide and health risks and all these things that come with toxic masculinity for sure. Yes. And, you know, we're in Texas, you know, the redneck culture. So this is really strikes home for me for sure. But what's interesting, so my brother from coming up, like I can see so, he's just so wounded exactly because of this. Yet I have two teenage sons and I actually ran this by one of them this morning. And I said, I told him the conversation we were going to have, it was totally different. He was like, well, men can, men can be men. Like, what's the problem? I think that's, that's you guys that, you know, that's like a, that's an old person's thing. Oh, wow. So I didn't know that's if that's like, an, I certainly see that with in general, especially related to sexual orientation and mm. different things like that, where the, there's, you don't have to have a gay prom, like you can bring your gay yes. date to the prom, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was just wondering in your research, do you think that there's a change over the ages yeah, they, there's a lot of interesting data. I'll tell you a story. I, I quote David Hogg, who's you know one of the amazing activists in, in the, yeah. the Parkland students, mm-hmm. you know, for gun uh, safety. Yes, and he's incredible. And you know, we talked with their group, and they're all you know 17, 18, still re- really amazing, <laughs> so young, and they know and so wise. Um, but there's a big generational divide between even me. I'm a, I'm, I'm a millennial, but I sensed a huge gap in terms of this conversation around masculinity. And I'll tell you, I kind of had a conversation around the intersection of masculinity and gun violence. And we had a really interesting conversation around empathy. And then as we walked away, I I overheard one of them say, gender, like that's made up, right? Like they almost kind of laughing at me for being like a old school, you know, thinking (laughs) that that, the gender is a real thing. I think that a lot of young people definitely view gender as fluid they even view sex on a spectrum you know they're living in a I think in a very different world than I know I grew up in but on the other hand what we see happening also and I quote some of the data in the book is with young men young men are actually less tolerant of working women than their fathers were So young men report basically being more uncomfortable with a working mother, with a woman being both inside the home and being out at work, that they express more worries about that and about her ability to do both of those things and to be specifically a good mother. So that is perplexing. And my takeaway from speaking with so many men, and I'm curious if you have a different perspective on that, but from what I gathered the number one word that came up when I would tell men, what, what does it mean to be a man to you? What is, mm-hmm. what did you know that you were a man is still the word provider. That is, mm-hmm. if you know, providing is at the core still of masculinity and the test of being a good man and an accomplished man and having succeeded as a man is being able to provide. And as we're seeing so many jobs, not just from the recession, which was actually nicknamed by several economists as the man session because so many 80% of the jobs that were lost were 
jobs that men held. We're seeing a lot of the jobs that are traditionally done by men, manufacturing jobs, coal mining jobs, which I you know talk about in the book. Those are jobs that are disappearing or they're moving overseas. And so I think the number is 10 million. I think there are 10 million missing men in our economy. I think that's a number from 2017. So it might even be you know bigger at this point. So there are a lot of men who aren't able to do the one thing that they believe is at the core of their identity as human beings and their purpose and value on this earth. So whether it's because of the economy, whether it's because of things like that you can't control, like disability, you know, for black men in America, it is harder to get a job if you have a college degree than a white man without a college degree. There are all kinds, you know, the mass incarceration complex, there's so many barriers to having that stable job that makes sure that you can put food on on your table. And as women, basically female-dominated professions right now, a lot of men are not going into them. We can talk about that. Nursing, caretaking, teaching, those jobs are the ones that are just you know, multiplying. We're in a service economy. We're, we're in an economy that we're empathy, we're people skills, right? Those are the things that are valuable in the job market. If women are the breadwinner in 40% of households, if they are making more than their husbands, if their husbands are out of work, I think that that creates an identity threat. And so some men will be able to, I think, understand that and do the work of, wow, I feel really crappy because I have these expectations of who I need to be as a man and I'm not able to achieve them. So I'm going to, I don't know, go work out, do therapy, um, find other defining features and measures of fulfillment in my life and of purpose. Maybe being a stay-at-home dad if he has kids, and obviously I'm talking about straight couples, but diversifying the way that you draw fulfillment in your life. I think that there are several men doing that, but I also think that there are other men who aren't equipped with that, with those skills, who aren't equipped with the resources to do therapy, to understand what's going on. And so what we're seeing is, you know, deaths of despair. We're seeing skyrocketing suicide rates. And, and men are far more likely to, unfortunately, die of suicide. Men are more likely to drink. Men are more likely to smoke. Men are more likely to abuse drugs. We're seeing rates of domestic violence actually correlate with couples where women makes more money, where a woman is more, quote unquote, empowered, and, or where the men is not able to achieve these traditional ideals of masculinity. And so what we're seeing is real social problems, probably the biggest social problems of our time, really being linked to this crisis for men. The best name I have is just the man crisis, if you have a better idea, Um, (laughs) because I find crisis and masculinity feels academic. And then to your original point is maybe not interesting to the people who may actually really need to be aware of it. But yeah, I just see this man crisis being related to what seems like the world's most unsolvable problems. And, and I think that having a space to have those conversations, having policymakers interested in how to resolve some of those issues would just make a world of a difference, not just for men, but for the women in their lives. So that women are not the ones who are shouldering this emotional burden, which I'm sure you see in your office all the time. In group therapies and yes. <laughs> yeah, that women are the ones who are doing this emotional work, who are trying to, help men who are self-medicating or self-soothing with different drugs or other things. I mean, gambling, eating, you know, whatever it is, we all find ways to deal with our pain. But unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, it's the the Richard War thing of if you don't process your pain, you're going to transmit your pain. And so I think it's important to help men 
transform pain and understand what pain is there. And again, you can speak to this more than I can, but I think a lot of the men who come into therapy and a lot of the men who read the book and who've talked to me about it is that they didn't even know all of the pain that they had been holding on to. And I really think naming it like that, that's part of the importance of like it gives a vision instead of just taking things away that Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to be this, you're not supposed to be that, you're not supposed to, it gives a direction and that is one with pride, which then pride to me is like, because what you're describing is a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. And when those things are taken away, then not being exposed and then also not having Mm -hmm. the emotional practice to know how to manage those kinds of feelings you're right so then it gets typically acted out of course Uh, another thing i was thinking about was narcissism we had talked about narcissism earlier and toxic masculinity and there's some play there but Mm -hmm. they're not exactly the same thing but i just wondered if you had any thoughts about the connection between you know malignant narcissism and toxic masculinity i mean i'm more curious what you think there are more men who are narcissistic than women, correct? Am, yes, I, am I right? Yes, for sure. What's the percentage? What's the ratio? I don't know the number, but it's very, it's not, a, like it's not 80, at all an equal distribution. Like 80, 20 or 70, 30, like something like that. Uh, yes, yes, yeah, it's pretty yeah. big. And this is your expertise. You know, I was just listening to your excellent episode <laughs> about dealing with narcissists. And as an empath, <laughs> I attract them and I'm now starting to take responsibility for not taking responsibility, but actively trying to, instead of just trying to fix other people all the time and focusing on what's wrong with them and reading all these articles about narcissistic people, I'm looking internally to what draws me to these people and how can I change that? I hope that yes, was part of our message for sure. 100%. Oh, yes. So it's yeah. super helpful. But yeah, narcissism is defined by a lack of empathy, a oversized focus on yourself and in in terms of how it is acted out is often being very dismissive and and not caring of the people around you and putting your needs first and I think that a lot of women who are heterosexual or who have relationships with men will come across at some point a partner who is narcissistic and I think that it's you know what I'll say is I think that we the characters that we have as men in, in movies and films and, and books. See, I think that we've had a really big conversation around we need strong female leads. We need women who are not just, you know, sideshows to the men in the movies. We need women who have all kinds of different characteristics and who are going through all kinds of different things, who are complex, right? And I don't think men are very complex. We have a lot of men in movies. They get to talk. They get to, you know, be most often the protagonists. And we watched the Oscars. We saw how difficult it is for for women to even be given the same kind of support when they want to make movies, let alone movies about women. But I think that male characters, what I find is that TV and film has sort of made me think that our narcissistic man is the man that I should be focusing on and that I should be striving for the validation from. And there's a little bit of a self-interest in seeing different kinds of men in the media and in Hollywood, because I think that we need a different model of what women are supposed to pursue. And of course, I'm going to bring up Sex in the City, because, you know, I'm from that generation. And the model was that big is the one, big, big is the 
flaming misogynist, I mean, maybe not misogynist, but narcissist, right? Mm. He is so focused on what he wants. He's so focused on what he needs. He doesn't want to show up at the altar. He doesn't show up at the altar because he got scared and she's just forgive him. So I think that we've given women, unfortunately, we've cut them a raw deal or we've, I think, made it harder for them to recognize narcissism and not just be charmed by it because narcissists will charm you. And now I've learned to associate that draw that I have or, mm-hmm. or how I feel pulled, that magnetic pull towards someone who is very charming. I now see that as a red flag instead of, oh my God, we're connecting and mm-hmm. he's so great and he's so interesting and so smart, you know, because narcissism is ultimately, you can't really not, you can't really change it, right? Once you've had that wound and you have that, is it possible to not be a narcissist? Like if we change our ideals of masculinity in our society and we encourage more empathy and we included men in emotional education programs, do you think that a lot of men who are narcissists would be able to turn the clock on that? The good news is absolutely, for sure. And it's also interesting that as men age, their degree of narcissism goes down. The thought about that is those adaptations to be safe and Mm. being grandiose and stuff like that. Once you start aging and you're not able to compete in the alpha, you know what I mean? You begin to lose Mm. some of that power that there's a way that there's a natural shift. But toxic masculinity is kind of interested in crossing those two. So narcissism, you're right, it's a personality characteristic, really, that goes mm-hmm. through the lifetime. If You can definitely change it. If somebody's actually interested in it and, and able yeah. to see it in themselves and you know, has close enough relationships to be able to have that mirror put up to them, yeah, absolutely, for sure, for sure, for sure. There's a lot right. of hope and a lot of change about that. But with toxic masculinity, I guess I just see it as, you know, you can be narcissistic but not have this toxic masculinity, obviously. Mm-hmm. But toxic masculinity is very, very, very narcissistic, you know, and it's also relationship-based, like, so with narcissism, no matter what, you're just narcissistic, right? Mm. But with toxic masculinity, those negative characteristics come out based on relationship. So, like, if you get a more alpha man, you do get the submission and the, you know what I mean, those behaviors aren't as strong because of the hierarchy. So, he's already on top. He doesn't need to... Right. You know, be that invested in trying to get higher. Yeah. So that, you know, and again, unfortunately, the culture of real man and people really adopt that and they're doing that and they're trying to get along. So that's relationship based. So, for example, so he's on top. But then when, Mm -hmm. when another guy comes that is more on top, that you see those behaviors change. You know what I mean? In order to do the hierarchy, right? Like almost like I think of it in the wild, you know, the animals like sniffing each other. And so even a dominant dog, you know, if there's a more dominant dog knows just how to like roll over and knows what to do there, like safety and threat kind of thing. It's so interesting you say that because there's a whole online community, you know, they call themselves pickup artists or they're, you know, on 4chan, the alt-right men's groups activists, these are all sort of separate communities, but that really overlap. And these are mostly disaffected, mostly white young men who go on these forums. And there's obviously misogyny, you know, when when we're thinking about the rise of white supremacy and the rise of the alt-right and the rise of these, you know, men who are actually, you know, assembling and ranting about immigrants on these platforms and then going out and shooting a Walmart, as we know, happened in El Paso. But often the gateway 
is the misogyny. Mm-hmm. So the gateway to the white supremacy, to the you know anti-Semitic, to, to, to all of that racial hatred, often misogyny is the gateway. That's how they start getting involved in these communities. And a lot of it is obviously rooted in this hatred of women. It's the incel movement, right? These men who have been responsible for domestic terrorism, they are at the bottom of that hierarchy. And they call the men at the top, the chads. Oh, Do you wow. know this? No. This is mind-blowing. There was a New Yorker cover showing that these men are now getting surgeries to look like chads. They have this whole theory about the muscles measurements and the bone structure of the chad. And he has a bone structure that's this way. If you Google it, you can, you know, really go down a rabbit hole on these forums. I mean, this is going down the rabbit hole, but they basically believe that women, because they're refusing to have sex with them, that, 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 that all the women should be compelled or obligated or mandated to have sex with them, but they are all seeking to have sex with the 20% at the top, which are the chads. And because of that, because women are, you know, idiots and they're just seeking to be with 20%, then 80% of men in this category who don't have what the chads have are these disaffected men that something has been taken away from them. They're this aggrieved entitlement to women and to even more things in our society. But that that deep aggrieved entitlement is at the root of these really hateful groups. And to me, it it sort of speaks to what you're talking about. And what I think is fascinating and that I barely touched on in the book because there was so much to talk about, but I was kind of the tip of the iceberg, which is that the patriarchy is a pyramid scheme. (laughs) The patriarchy is, again, and unfortunately, you know, I have a master's degree in gender studies and I've read a lot of things about feminism. And it almost seems like in everything that I'd read, that men benefited from the patriarchy, that men love the patriarchy, that why would men ever join feminist movements? Because they love it. And what I found when I was talking to men was that a lot of them don't love it. And a lot of them do feel like there's a very narrow portion of men who are white and good looking and rich and wealthy and, you know, whose parents are basically Donald Trump, you know, who can get away with whatever they want and don't need to respect the rules. And, they win. And the majority of men lose. And that's where also intersectionality comes in. And something that I think is so important in this conversation, which is, if we were to have any conversation around feminism, it would have to be intersectional or else it's not a conversation. The same thing applies to this, you know, being a black man in America, and you know, where you are in that hierarchy is very different. If you're a white man in America, and then you add social economic status, you add sexual orientation, you know, you add whether someone is cisgendered, disabled or not. And then you really see the way that, yes, we have a hierarchy with men at the top and women at the bottom, but we also have a hierarchy within men that is extremely complex and extremely oppressive for a lot of the men who, who are in it. And again, if we don't have a compassionate, empathetic conversation about it, men will find these online hate groups that will blame women, that will blame immigrants, that will lead them to blame you know, people of color and who ever and lead them to horrible acts of violence against other people or even themselves. But there's a reason why there's so many of those groups. There's a reason why so many men are going on these online forums and that those forums are proliferating. And unless we have that compassionate conversation where we say, okay, yeah, that must be hard for you. How does that feel like when you feel like you can't go up to a woman and you're not good at flirting with a woman? 
why don't we help you with that? <laughs> why don't we teach men how to seduce a woman, uh, right? Like they do in the Netherlands, right? Why isn't that part of our anti-violence, anti-sexual assault curriculum? Why don't we show what it looks like when you get consent and how to read nonverbal signs, how to get if a woman is interested, you know, you can feel it. And yes, we want verbal consent, but we also, I think, want men, we want everyone to be more emotionally intelligent and to be more understanding and to comprehend interpersonal relationships because we're all trying to figure it out. As I'm sure you agree, it's still wild to me that there was a curriculum for math, there was a curriculum for algebra, there was a curriculum for geometry, all these things I would not even be able to, 99% of it, which I've forgotten, but there's no specific curriculum for emotional education. When we know that EQ far surpasses IQ in terms of determinant of how well you're going to do in your life and how well you do and how successful you are and how happy you are. So being able to manage, to understand your emotions, being able to understand the emotions of other people, those are the people who are thriving. Those are the people who are happy. So why aren't we investing in that curriculum for our kids and honestly adults we have sexual harassment videos we have the videos of like what you can't do but how about videos of what you could do (laughs) like where's that I think more positive productive and welcoming framework that kind of doesn't make you feel dumb or doesn't make you feel like there's something wrong with you that you might not know how to approach a woman, you know, or any person. And that social anxiety is a real thing that we all feel. We all feel crappy at a party and we have a drink in our hands because we all feel nervous. We're all going through things in our minds, but we're somehow under the impression that everyone's got this and everyone knows what they're doing and they don't. (laughs) No, they totally don't actually, right? And I wonder, you're so compelling. Like I'm imagining in talking like this, who wouldn't want that, right? No matter what your background is, all it just is so compelling. This idea of influence, is that part of what makes you the kind of the magic of the influence? I don't know. I mean, I moved to New York with 33 Twitter followers. You know, I'm very privileged to have had an education, to have a master's degree, to have been able to move to a foreign country and do those things because I fit a certain standard of femininity. A lot of people believe probably unconsciously that my feminism is more palpable than other women's feminism who don't look like me and who are not white and who are not presenting as straight, even though I am queer. So those things have definitely helped me and I don't take those for granted. And at the same time, I want to use the platform that I've earned. I'm not really interested in just being good. Like, I'm not just interested in saying the right thing and saying the thing that sounds right and saying the future is female and everything's going to be great and men suck or cancel men, right? Like that gets all kinds of views and engagement and followers, right? To act from a place of anger, to act because a lot of people are angry and I totally understand that. I measure activism based on impact. And that's what I'm trying to achieve with this book. I'm trying to make it more palpable to men for sure, but not because I think men can't handle it, not because I think women have to be nicer to men and not be so in their face. I'm just really interested in everyone feeling welcome in this conversation. And yeah, me writing a book that is making all kinds of great points about masculinity, but then no man ever reads and worse that only women read. And then they're trying to convince they're the ones again, doing the emotional labor of helping men through these challenges. That's not what I want. 
I want women to be free of that emotional labor. I want to be free of that emotional labor. I've done it. I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want my daughter, you know, if I have a daughter one day to have to do it anymore. You know, there were men who came to my book tour. I mean, just oh, one man showed up and he's like, my girlfriend broke up with me three days ago and I need this you know, and, and I need to be better. And for so long, and still to this day, women are, you know, a lot of women told me this, they're like, I don't feel married to a man, I feel like a rehab center for mm-hmm. him. And or mother. Yes, exactly. But then you're also naggy. And then it's annoying that you're the mother. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, you're, you know, not taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And then therefore not taking care of me. And so I want men to have more tools, but I want men to create their own spaces where they talk about this. I want men of influence, who have more influence than you know, some feminists from Canada to take this on their platforms in their movies. We've seen it a little bit. Even Brad Pitt started talking about masculinity and we need a new model. Uh, we need to see men going through grief. We need to see men going through challenges with alcohol. We've seen him be pretty open about his own. That's huge. And that will make a real difference for men who are watching and who, yeah, may not, you know, have the privilege to, to buy a $28 book about masculinity, but the images that we see, the things that we hear celebrities say, that we hear our politicians say, that is extremely impactful and extremely important. And I think the more we make that conversation open and the more we listen, because often this is a conversation where we, you know, we have our points we want to make. And then we wait for the person to stop talking to make our point, <laughs> whether it's, a, it's about masculinity or whether it's about who to vote for or whether it's about, you know, all of these huge questions in the ether right now. And I think it's really important to actually listen to each other. And I think that those conversations will make us all grow. And I'm excited. I think there's a lot of potential for this conversation. Me too. You know, you mentioned celebrities and I noticed, I don't know, you know, Tim Ferriss is, yes. um, right. He uh, was just having a conversation with Brene Brown and he, he was acknowledging his uh, podcast, huge, by the way, if yeah. you don't know about it, of course. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all been about performance and yes. performance mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's shifting and he's even acknowledging mm-hmm. it's shifting that you can't really have that external performance or the muscles or the whatever it is if like that isn't what's going to do it for you. Oh, and that's so, so interesting. Even with that big of a forum, so I'm just sort of joining about the celebrities yeah. having such an influence. So yeah. now that there's much more of a direction of going inward and like doing the actual hardest transformation. Oh, yeah. Stuff you've been mentioning, right, is unpacking all of these things. And even mm-hmm. looking at what you may have done historically, things like yes. that, that is a mess. And yet it is the number one thing, related, like you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. related to health and longevity. It, like all the good stuff comes mm-hmm. from secure relating. And that has to, you know, that includes our internal sense of ourselves. And, you know, when we yeah. hate ourselves or hate our bodies or, you know, if I'm a wimpy man or something like that. So being able to do and that. And I have to hide that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, or overcompensate for yes. that. Or then, just and, live in it. Mm-hmm. And one thing which we haven't talked about, which, you know, is that for many men, the male intimacy comes back to these norms, these rules, this male code. Men lack like male on male intimacy in their lives. And a lot of men will say, I have friends, you know, or, or I mean, this is the classic one where it's like, you and your husband are going through a lot of shit and he'll go 
watch the game with his friends or he'll go on a hike with mm-hmm. you know his friend Matt and he comes back and, he's, and you're like so what did what did Matt say about that thing you were going through about at work and he's like oh yeah that that didn't really come up <laughs> and you're like what <laughs> So for the men listening, I'm thinking about, you know where I see this, like the most beautiful transformations is in group therapy. And when you're in group with, you know, a mixed gender, mixed, you know, mixed everything group, I see the men find each other. And it is so powerful because even with boys and fathers, it's really different than girls Mm -hmm. and mothers. So really want to encourage anybody listening to follow up because this is not something you can just go in a closet and, you know, do your own self-help around. But this book, we're going to really, really highlight it on our show. We're going to really emphasize it. So can you say a little bit more about if people wanted to reach you or the book? Yeah, so you can find my book everywhere. I have a website where you can, you know, buy it online from Barnes & Noble to Amazon. And I encourage you to go and and buy it at your local bookstores. I have a link there too to find, you know, an indie bookstore near you that carries the book. And if they don't carry it, you can ask them to call it in and don't do it. I mean, I'm um, talking about the book, but the book is For the Love of Men, yes. A New Vision of Mindful Masculinity. This would be a Thank great you. gift. A really yes, good it's a gift. really good gift. It, it's a really good gift for a father, for a brother, a brother-in-law. I've everybody. Been, you know, everybody. <laughs> and, and it's not a book that is attacking. It is not a book that is coming from a place that is, you know, telling men what to do or how to be. It's really a book that is interested in opening up a conversation with men about what it means to be a man to them. Yeah, and it would be a great book to do a book club around. It is super fun for a book club. Or to do a reading group or to do an online uh, reading group. 100% and people will disagree, right? People have different experiences. That's the richness of this conversation. Every time I've done something, you know, from Morning Joe to bigger audiences, it's, it's just the conversation. It's so many people have different things to say about it and mm different experiences to share and opinions about it. And this is, yeah, a really, really rich conversation that will make you, you know, closer to the men in your lives too, in, in a way that I think is really enriching for women too. So yeah, I, this is the best badge of honor I could have. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite therapist. <laughs> I was so, so excited when you agreed to it. I was like, really? Oh my God. Yeah. No, um, I don't know. Are there any other links or resources that you wanted to give or you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. If What's you put your in handle? Liz Plank, you'll find me on Twitter. It's Feminist Tabulous. And on Instagram, it's Liz Plank. Yeah, I also recommend The Will to Change by Bell Hooks is mm-hmm. this book, but far better and written 20 years ago. She wrote about masculinity in basically yeah, 1999 in, in such a beautiful way and speaks to the experience of black men in America, but, but all men in America. And so I highly recommend that. It's really short too. So it's a really good book to just get. It's often available at bookstores, but because it's older, you might just want to get it online. And I recommend Thomas Page McBee, who's a really amazing writer who's a trans and talks about his transition and how he learned all of the rules and the code of masculinity, but when he became a man, basically, and saw how differently the world treated him. I recommend Wade Davis, who's in, you know, all, all these people are quoted in my book, but Wade Davis is the diversity inclusion at the NFL. He was the first openly gay football player and has just, yeah, an incredible wealth of knowledge about all this stuff. And in terms of an organization, I'm a big supporter of A Call to Men. We did a fundraiser, a lot of the, um, you know, as many profits from from uh, these fundraisers that I've been able to do, I've given to them because they're focused on programming for young boys and men across America, and they're doing really, really important work. 
And it fits right in with our theme on the podcast about promoting secure relating and really one conversation at a time even. And I think the vehicle in general, I think, is this compassion and the sympathy. And again, I think about how we started the conversation about, like, initially, you weren't wanting to be empathic to the narcissist, right? But that, yes. but that right? So there is something. <laughs> I still like, I think it's a woman thing, right, too, that we always want to help other people. And we, you know, when we're not helpful to other people, and we're not thinking about how everyone's feeling, we actually, you know, get punished for it. But for women, if you tell me the narcissist can change, should I be sticking around till he does? Or how do I resist the temptation if I have a lot of empathy for him to, to stick around for what's, you know, really not acceptable behavior? I think it's a great, it's, I think it's a great question. One thing that comes to mind is this idea of mm-hmm. fawning. Have you ever heard of this, like, related to no. trauma? No. So, like, it's trauma-based. It's not just, like, socialized so that's, there's some conversation about that that's really interesting, helping us see. And it's not just women, but when we have learned to survive by reading the other person. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's terrifying. Like it, it can be, mm. that's what I'm saying is sometimes it's not just gendered socialization. Mm-hmm. It really is stored in our body in a way that it is very dangerous to set yeah. a boundary or to say no or to differentiate in some way. A narcissist, nobody can change if they don't see it. Yeah. So everything just is self-referential. Comes back to them. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. I'm going to look up the fawning thing. That's interesting. I never thought about that. But yes, that like it's a almost like a, well, it's a, like tra- a fantasizing. Yeah, it's a trauma. Yeah. It's a trauma reaction. I think it's a really good concept to have out there because it really nails down just how much it's in our, I mean, it's in our nervous system. Yes. You know? yes. And just another real quick thing, men with narcissism, it's on the HPA axis internally, which is uh, it's basically the, where the, the stress, hypothalamus, adrenaline, it's basically our stress response system, that their stress response system is more activated, like it just stays up. And, and women that have narcissism, that's not necessarily, it's up a little bit, but it's not anything like that. So it's just an interesting way to think about it is like, if you're competing, if it's kill or be killed, then uh, you better be on alert. And then that stress that you're feeling, yeah. um, this is part of why that what you're doing is so important is that it's toxic when you're just bathed mm-hmm. in cortisol and, you know, mm. norepinephrine and there's danger and there is danger. In the pyramid scheme, if you're really going for the top, actually wherever you are, <laughs> it's really dangerous. So I just yeah. thought that that was kind of interesting. Well, yeah. thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. you um, thank this you was so awesome. Much. I really yeah, appreciate thanks. it. All right. I, I love everything you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. I can't believe it. <laughs> All right. You take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.